<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Zach Tolstoy, co-founder of Stand Up Speak Up. The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is dedicated to raising awareness and offering support to those feeling hurt, lost, or forgotten. On today's episode, our host Carla sits down with brain retraining coach Bria Griffiths. To most people, Bria seemed to have it all. She was a great student and talented athlete, playing varsity soccer at Princeton University. But in the years after graduating, Bria's journey would become one of pain, isolation, and even homelessness. With dozens of debilitating symptoms, including overwhelming fatigue, chronic pain, headaches, face swelling, vertigo, and many more, Bria was bedridden most days. Yet, Bria never seemed to get any real answers from doctors. She took on many medical tests and alternative treatments, including moving away from her husband and kids and camping alone in the California desert, chasing pristine air. It was during her second time in this desert isolation where she was introduced to self-directed neuroplasticity, aka brain retraining. By following the DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining System, Bria was able to rewire her brain and heal her body. Today, Bria is happy, healthy, and reunited with her children. And now she's helping others find the same life-changing healing as a brain retraining coach. This is Bria's story. Enjoy. Today, I have an amazing, inspiring guest that is someone that from the minute I heard about her story, I knew I wanted to have her on the podcast. But it took a bit to come to this because I actually hired her to be a a coach for me for what's called brain retraining. And I know that sounds like kind of a weird thing because you're thinking, what do you mean brain retraining? Are you teaching memory? Are you teaching how to to not get chemo fog? Because for all of you out there that don't know, I'm stage four breast cancer. So I do have all those issues. I have chemo fog. I have memory lapses. I have all of those. But actually, this goes much deeper than that. And it is about changing a person's brain so that old thinking and old behaviors and old way of learnings basically disappear. And what comes out is a new way of thinking and mostly about yourself. It's basically how thoughts control your body. And so, of course, you'd want positive thoughts. But I was in a really dark place this past year and I was struggling with mental health. I was struggling with my pain and I was seeking something out besides drugs because I felt the drugs made me worse and actually sometimes caused me to go into deeper depression. I really felt that I felt that my body was telling me I cannot take any more drugs. And so I had watched the healing documentary on Netflix with everybody watched with Joe um, Dispenza. And he had talked about healing yourself through your brain. And so I actually got really kind of interested in this. And I ordered some books and I started to research it. 
And then I said to my physiotherapist, Nicole Clark, who I said to her one day, I'm really fascinated by this brain retraining and what we can teach our brain to do and teach our brain to heal. She's like, you're not going to believe this. I know someone that actually coaches that. And I'm like, what? Yeah, she's a friend from high school and her name's Bria. And I think that you guys have to meet. And I was like, this is so coincidental. Nobody really knows anyone that knows anything about it. I've only been able to read about it and watch it on documentaries. I've never even met someone that has lived through the process. And so Bria and I connected and I actually hired her to be my brain retraining coach. And we're going to talk about what that process is like, because it's kind of very uh, mysterious sounding what goes on behind closed doors when you're trying to do that. But what's most captivating about this story is not my story, not yet. It's Bria's story. She's an amazing person that has gone through what people would say is the worst circumstances that most people will ever have to go through in their entire life. And her story is so compelling that many times on our coaching call, I just want to hear about her. And that's why I wanted to do this podcast because she's one of the most fascinating people that I've actually met through all my years of doing this podcast because she's lived through such horrible trauma and come through the other side in such a positive way. And actually another person that did the same thing on the podcast, which many of you know about, is also um, Sandra and her story. She also was able to do it, but not through a controlled situation like brain retraining. So I just want Bria, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to set the stage for who Bria was in high school. Okay. Gosh. Okay. Well, thank you, Carla, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's so great to get to do this with you because I know you and I'm getting to know you more. So, all right. So who was I in high school? Um, you know, I grew up in, in Burlington, Ontario. Uh, I was at Nelson High School. I was an academic athlete, you know, top of my class, top level athlete, played multiple sports, but my main sport was soccer. Um, and I was just that really happy, bubbly. Also, I would say popular. Like this was, I was the type of person that just loved life and wanted to just shine in every area. So, you know, I was a partier on top of the, um, and rebellious, but you know, it was kind of, it was under the, under the, it was sly. Uh, at least I thought it was. And I was, yeah, I was a, a high level athlete and I was, ended up being recruited for um, soccer to go to Princeton actually after high school. You know, not all of you can see what uh, Bria looks like, um, but she is beautiful, breathtaking. Um, and so on top of it, just gorgeous. And she goes to Princeton, which is, as we all know, a famous school. And what's even more interesting is what Bria studied. Yeah, I studied. Uh, well, I started out just on the pre-med track there uh, as an athlete. I mean, soccer was my number one focus, but um, but I was there. Yes, obviously studying. And I started out in pre-med, but I switched over to ecology and evolutionary biology um, as my major when you have to choose that in your, in your sophomore year. That's your second year. I've always been a truth seeker. I love math and science because it was just something that I could connect with. And, um, and I felt like I could find truth in. So, yeah. And so now we, we push forward, you meet your husband at Princeton. (laughs) 
He's a fellow Princeton athlete and life is going really well. I mean, you're both um, graduate from a top school, but there are stresses in your life. I mean, you were a perfectionist and you had the highest expectation of yourself, but people also expected of you because you had had this amazing life up until then. You know, what's interesting, I just want to say is that I, you know, at Princeton, my health issues actually started while I was in college. It was like a slow deterioration uh, down from, you know, freshman year was really, really good. And by senior year, things were definitely a struggle. So uh, and I, I can see the overachiever in me. But at the same time, I think there was looming in the dark in the darkness behind where I wasn't focusing on it was a fear of not being good enough a fear of having to measure up and you're around all these peers who are, you know, coming from being essentially the top, you know, athlete or, you know, top in their school. And now you're just kind of plunked into this mix and you're all, you know, excelling. <laughs> well, the whole thing about your story is that up until then, people could have just said that you had a lot of pressure of being above average. Mm-hmm. And the perfectionist, you know, they even have a a term for people that suffer from um, exhaustion, from just, you know, going at it such full steam, like you went pretty hardcore into your life. Yeah, absolutely. I was constantly pushing. I mean, I was running marathons and just pushing my body because I just thought that I could beat everything. (laughs) Be everything. Now let's go into you. You returned to Canada. You've got some issues, but you still are pushing on, right? And you... You get married and you have kids, but marriage is hard, right? (laughs) It's hard. Having kids, it's hard. So there's the pressures of that. And then talk about the day when you felt like, well, this is um, much sicker than I thought. I think, you know, as I was trying to pick up my life again, because I did have a crash, first of all, into before we had kids in 2007, at the end of, um, it was my fourth marathon, the Boston Marathon. And after that, I just, I couldn't really judge, I just couldn't function, even just trying to run around a track. And I just ran 26 miles. And um, so after that, there was a significant crash I went through. Um, Things did recover. I won't go through all that. We'll just shift to years later in 2014. um, You know, I had rebalanced after our first, my first pregnancy, really, which was in 2008. In 2014, I was trying to push through, I was working Um, but it was a nonprofit, you know, three days a week, nothing substantial, but I just knew my body couldn't really handle much more than that at that time already. And, um, I finally had to decide, I just couldn't handle this anymore. I needed to stop working altogether. But then from there, it actually got much, much worse after that. Um, I did become, especially I, I got so desperate that I decided that I, if I got pregnant with my third child, that, um, I thought that that would balance my hormones out and, um, that, you know, I would get some leg up again. And obviously that's a terrible motivation to have a baby, um, and I struggled to get pregnant, did all the fertility stuff, eventually did, uh, but it ended up just being my, my labor with my third child, probably one of the main, you know, precipitating events for the next and final real leg of my illness, which lasted another, uh, I guess, three and a half years. Okay. So you thought that some of this had happened because the hormones mix up during your pregnancy. What made you think that? Because in 2007, even though I was struggling with all these issues, um, like I was talking about, we, I left work and my husband and I had decided we're going to go and volunteer in Venezuela. And just, I was the type of person I was like, I don't ever want to stop living life. I'm just going to push through everything. And while I was there getting away from everything, I did seem to have something, you know, happen that at least actually affected my libido because I had no libido at that point. 
And um, anyway, we got pregnant accidentally. <laughs> um, and then we, when we came home, something seemed to just kind of restabilize enough that I could function again. And so I always figured there was just some hormonal imbalance. And, you know, when you're desperate at the point where I was at now later in 2014, after trying functional medicine, you know, all these different doctors, I was told, you know, I had an autoimmune condition, um, Addison's disease before. And so there was which is to do with your cortisol levels. So um, I know all these things that just eventually I just out of desperation, I just, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> like when you would, how would you, how would you function? I mean, this is at the time, this is even before it gets so much worse. Yes. I mean, this yes. is at a time when it's manageable. I mean, it feels unmanageable, but you're managing it. Yeah. You get up in the morning and how do you feel? Um, oof, uh, completely hungover, completely wanting to vomit, nauseous, sometimes unable to stand. If I didn't have kids, I think I would have become bedridden much sooner because it was like, I have to get out of bed. I have to force myself out of bed. Uh, a lot of dizziness, just times where I just, I would stand up and have to immediately go right back down to being horizontal. Uh, even you name it. There's so many things about pain all over headaches, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's how I would start my day. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. When I feel like this alone, I cannot function and I don't have to function because my son is elder and he can help take care of me. I mean, he's 20. He does caregiving with me as well. I can't imagine feeling like you do having to take care of kids and having to be a wife on top of that. <laughs> People came to help. I couldn't do it. I mean, my mother-in-law was a huge support. She was there oftentimes at six o'clock in the morning. My husband was the poor man. I mean, he worked so many hours, had his own business. He was so, so just done. And he would come home and he would have to clean up the house. Like it was not, I wasn't able to, to really be a mom or a wife, to be honest. I was there. And there were moments where I was pushing myself to be able to, you know, make a meal or something, but it wasn't, I wasn't, no, it fell apart. I, for a while there, I was, you know, trying to hold it together, but eventually it fell apart. And so now what year are we into right now? Goodness me. So after 2015, after my daughter was born, um, things got really haywire. And that's when I lost my hearing in one ear. I was um, just vomiting. I that winter, I uh, ended up with pneumonia. I just was so, I mean, literally I would be drenched in sweat and unable to sleep basically ever. Like it was torture. I was being tormented in my body. At any point, were you suicidal? At that point, I wasn't, I wouldn't say suicidal. We'll get to that part later. But I was at a point where I said to my mom, you know, mom, if this is what my life is going to be like, I don't want to live it anymore. And I just like, Sorry, but there was this one time that my husband, it was really sweet, actually. He said to me, um, you know, Bria, just, if you don't ever give up, that's enough for me. And, you know, that I held on to that for a really long time. So I was like, okay, like, at least I have his back. He knew it was real. Um, but, you know, and he tried, he did. I, I have nothing but love for that man, because at some point, everybody breaks and um, they lose their hope. So... Yeah, but that was, I held on to that for sure. And I was, to be honest, I'm like the eternal optimist. Like I was such an optimist to the point where I would, like I said, I'm like, I believe I can do anything. And I would push through everything and never stop. I seem to think that I was this machine that didn't need rest. Like that's just was my mentality. Um, so I don't know necessarily think that I, my mentality got me, I think in the end inadvertently to where I was, but it wasn't because I really just 
just, you know, ruminated on negative thoughts. What were doctors telling you at this point? Yeah, uh, at that point, I mean, like I said, there were markers for just inflammation and I had been diagnosed with, you know, uh, it was a Hashimoto's and, but it was like low level. And they were just like, yeah, take this pill. Like that's about all we can do. But I was like, it just kept getting worse. And, um, and so eventually I, you know, you take, try and take matters into your own hand. And that's when I was constantly, any minute I could, I was researching and I was on health summits. I was trying every diet possible, especially because I was down this kind of route of uh, autoimmunity. They didn't really have an answer for me. Um, and to be honest, I have to say that that stung because I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously. Like I was a hypochondriac and I had a hard time I had a lot of trauma from, from doctors. Like I remember trying to go to a doctor's office and appointment. I would literally just start profusely sweating. And my heart was just like, I just couldn't hold myself together and I'd be bawling. I couldn't even speak to them before it was like, I couldn't even get three words out because already all of this trauma from my experiences with doctors was in me. It was tough. It wasn't them. It was just me going to what I, who I believed are the people that are supposed to help me and just getting a wall. I can relate to that. I was undiagnosed for five years and I even drove down to Buffalo and tried to get support down there with x-rays. And, you know, if they had listened to me and understood that I was changing as a person and that my pain was getting worse, we probably could have caught my cancer at stage one or stage two. But to all of a sudden go from nobody believing I had anything wrong with me to being fully stage four and cancer through my body was shocking. That's why I think I felt so akin to your story because I think we both have not had a a voice that people listen to and we both taken matters in our own hands. I'm lucky I have you and I get to learn from from you. I can't imagine your journey with no one like you to guide you through. Oh yeah. And you can end up getting down some rabbit trails that people take you down when you're desperate. So that's where I am. You're desperate and you lose hope. So now you're, you're pretty much out of sorts, right? And your marriage would say at this point was falling apart. Absolutely. And you couldn't be a mother and you just felt low self-worth. Absolutely. I felt, and to be honest, at this point, I didn't realize that again, I was living by my feelings. It's a principle that we learn in brain retraining. And I just didn't know how to not live by my feelings at that point. Um, and, and my feelings were, you know, I feel weak. And so when people helped me, it made me feel worse about myself rather than mm-hmm. me thankful and feeling loved yeah. by them. It yes. just the worse. And so I became known uh, in the end when my husband told me and then like they, his family saw, thought that I was ungrateful. And I remember being really offended at the time. So I was like, I'm not ungrateful. It's just that the help that they were giving me, it was nothing compared to what I felt like I needed. And, um, but um, yeah, no, my self-worth was pretty much in the tank. I was this, you know, not a human being, I was a human doing. And so now you take away all of the things that I can do. And who am I? Who am I? If I don't add value today to the world, yes. if I'm not the person that I envisioned I'm supposed to be, and that's some of the stuff that you've been teaching me. And um, it's so powerful how, you know, you just even saying to me, which I I remember is about love and, you know, letting love in and being okay and not 
not being ungrateful to people to helping you, but let it in because you do feel when people help you all the time, you feel like a loser Yeah. because wow, I can't do any of this myself. Right. Like when did I become this person? Yeah. And you know, I want to say, I know we're going to go back to my story, but just, just want to put a little plug in here that um, when people hear that, like, well, if you're coaching someone just to receive love, like you can say that, but how do you do that? And um, because there's something where, you know, you can take something into your head, into the prefrontal cortex or that neocortex of your brain. um, But you have to start actually applying it get, get beyond this analytical, logical brain and into having these visceral experiences that are these deep experiences that go beyond, um, you know, just your intellect. And that's when you actually start to over time, repeatedly doing this, you start to really know it by heart. Like people say, it's something you just know in your heart. And so that's, that's part of the, the process that I do help take people down who, you know, are open to it. Um, and it's a growing process. I mean, I know personally, even though I started brain retraining, uh, what was that two, two and a half years ago when I had started? Um, I mean, I'm still today focusing on receiving love. It's a daily renewal. So, and thank you for that because, um, and we are going to get to what brain retraining is. Um, but I really want to get to the heart of your story because I think people need to understand how dark it went, just gets darker and darker. It does. Yeah. I, well, I'll just, say that, you know, after finally in 2017, March 6, 2017, I literally still know the day is the day I moved out of my house and it was supposed to be one month and it was to test out whether or not I was being affected by my home, um, to get out of it, to just see if my environment was making me sick. And then I never moved back and I became a nomad for a while. I did see improvement along with this avoidance protocol that I started on, uh, with environment, but also with some specific sort of detox supplements and protocols along the way. But I would see progress or improvement temporarily, and then I would get just hit back down to rock bottom again. Let's talk yeah. about that because at one point you said, okay, I have mold, I have a disease and I'm allergic to mold and that has made me sick. And then you said, okay, I'm allergic to all chemicals. Okay. So (laughs) there is a little bit of a, I didn't have MCS, which is multiple chemical sensitivity for a long time. I in fact, didn't really understand the whole mold thing. Even I just knew that I left my house and I did a few things and things started to get better. And there were some experiences that definitely were showing me like when my mom, anyway, my mom had mold in her house that I was living in and I left and I came back when they said they had cleaned it up and I started to tank again. And I was back down to being unable to speak and all these things. So I had legitimate experiences that um, really could connect to mold, but then the multiple chemical sensitivity and all these other things that came later. And that's where we, it gets really crazy when um, again, I wasn't telling myself, I was like, no, I don't know. I never believed I had multiple chemical sensitivity. Um, And then all of a sudden it happened literally overnight. So, I I mean, I can, I don't want to go and spend the whole time talking about my journey, but I will say that 2017 March, I moved out and uh, I moved to my mom's, had to move out of her house. It was like an emergency. I moved to my husband's aunt and uncle's home in their basement, four-year-old home. You know, it was great, but I started just going up and down, up and down. I would function, then I would not function. And it was like, when I'm not functioning, I'm really not functioning. And I was trying to just push through it all. And finally, when my husband decided to leave me, 
Um, he told me it was over. It was probably, I think that was November of 2017. Um, and I was, I was still living in his family's house. Uh, my kids were there. Uh, my mom was helping to take care of them and, you know, family whenever they could come. And finally, I had done enough avoidance that I was now being told um, that I needed to go and essentially live in the desert um, to detox so that my body could detox because my detox capacities were shot. I had this gene that was turned on now. It'll never get turned off. And now I'm sensitive to all these environmental things. And um, so the first time I went to the desert, it was actually planned. And um, I had raised funds through a GoFundMe to go potentially, you know, get some new, uh, see some doctors in the U.S. at Stanford and 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 get help with, because uh, at this point I was, I was sure I had myalgic encephalomyelitis. I was told, you know, by my doctors that that's, yes, chronic fatigue syndrome um, when there was a, a lab out there. But I ended up not ever going. I ended up on this mold adventure for the next, <laughs> oh, about a year. So I started out in uh, California and then it, things get crazier from there. I don't know what you want me to share, Carla, but. I think the fact that you were out in the desert by yourself in a tent, like yeah. a campsite that you made and you had to function by yourself is, right. is right out of a movie. It's bonkers. And I, and you know, I, I thought I could do it. The first day I got there, I actually stayed in San Francisco at a friend's for a couple of days. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to function and do this. I forced myself out there. And the first day I couldn't even get a tent up. I just, I couldn't, I was bawling my eyes out and I ended up staying. I forget. It was like one of their jet streams that, that they had this place. And then eventually I grew from there as I actually started to see some improvement, not knowing at the time that what I was really avoiding was all forms of stress other than obviously living in this survival, but I mean, psychological, just life stress. And it wasn't just about my air I was breathing, although that, that was a factor at the time for sure. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. 
let's talk about when you meet one of your best friends today, yeah. Brian. Sure. And um, things started to change around. I mean, you were, you had lost all hope. You were in a situation where you didn't believe that there was any help out there for you. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, just a feeling like I've just slightly, I tried coming home to be with my kids after three months after that first time. And I tried to rebuild my life and I did, like I said, saw some improvement, but then overnight from a mattress that I bought, I literally dropped like, I just like a $2 suitcase. I just fell apart. I now had sensitivities that were basically just like a life-threatening allergy kind of thing. And I couldn't be anywhere. I was now forced outside um, in Ontario. And it was now we got to October and it was getting too cold to live outside. And I was not sure what I was going to do. My mom was literally washing my clothes a specific way. My kids couldn't come near me unless they had um, showered and decontaminated. Everything had to be decontaminated. I was sleeping on a cot in my mother's shed. It was like I was on the run by the time I left again in October of 2018. At this point, I didn't know if I'd ever come back. Like that was the sad part. I was like, I don't know where my life is going, but like it felt like I was going to die if I stayed. So yeah. So then I was in back out where I had originally started in California. I mean, I was all over five states um, trying to chase basically pristine air um, and weather that I could tolerate because it got so bad this time that now with this MCS, I couldn't even be in a tent. And um, I tried so many different tents. I tried cleaning those tents. I tried everything. And so I was stuck and I couldn't, uh, even a rental car, I couldn't sleep in. So I was outside under, on a cot. <laughs> that was the, where I originally, I guess, where we could pick up with this meeting, this friend Brian is in Death Valley. Well, is- I think we, we even stopped there a little bit and just think for a minute what you said. Yeah, it's crazy. Chasing pristine air. That is everybody's nightmare. Right. Complete nightmare is to think that they can't exist in the air they're inhaling right now. Or from EMFs, the other thing, where there's any electromagnetic frequencies. So basically where people exist or live, where there's civilization. So I was sequestered to almost very little space in, and especially now in the wintertime, trying to live outside with the weather, um, I was very limited with where I could be. It got very, it got pretty, pretty crazy. I was starting to have some very major reactions and to the point where things would just blow up. Like all of a sudden everything would get contaminated and I couldn't be around anything. It sounds literally ludicrous, but I remember I was like, I had to get something away from me. It was in my car and, um, I was trying to drive anyway, I was driving and I just, I didn't really know what was going on. All I know is all of a sudden, I felt this gravity pulling me to just drive my car off the road and kill myself. And I, I can't explain it as anything other than demonic because there was no me in there. And, um, and I didn't, I held onto that wheel happened more than once. Um, but it, when I got, get this stuff out of there, at least that was my belief at the time that I would come back to feeling like lucid essentially. Um, so yeah, it just seemed to go. I didn't have mental health issues really that I knew of before this. And now all of a sudden I felt like I was losing my mind as well as uh, with all of it. So then at this point is when you're really desperate and you don't even know where to look. I didn't know where to look. I was exhausting. You know, you keep clinging to what you can find hope in. And, um, and now this is, this is rock bottom. And I, and I just, uh, I couldn't live a life like this. Obviously I, it just wasn't sustainable. I had no hope of seeing my children again. And I was just so confused, I think. Um, and so 
that's when, you know, I had met this friend of mine, Brian, through this group that we were talking about um, of these people who end up with these illnesses. I mean, you got to be pretty darn sick to be willing to go and put yourself through these things to chase your your health. So these are very severely ill people. And most of them, the ones that I've met anyway, are extremely smart. We're talking, you know, PhDs, engineers, even doctors, like we're not talking about just easily foolable people. People um, like you. People yeah, just like you're you. Right. Yeah, exactly. Very. Yeah. They're um, yeah. So it was, it was an interesting group. And, and there I met Brian, which was uh, my friend. He's from Michigan. Um, he had been unfortunately homeless at that point when we first met about five years because of this illness and he had tried living in the desert. And anyway, he has his whole own story, but him and I connected through this group. Um, I was a little apprehensive to connect with him because I could see on his Facebook post that he believed in Jesus. And at this point I was a blasphemous atheist. I believe that there was no God. I believed it was for weak people. So I was a little apprehensive to start talking to somebody who had of this faith, open faith in Jesus, but we did start to talk and he just was so gentle and kind and didn't really try and defend himself, which was interesting. So I mean, what's interesting, I think, of this story is it is in brain retraining, it's all very scientific. It doesn't have to have anything to do with Jesus or any type of religious belief. It is completely, completely separate in many books, scientific books about brain retraining is that if you do open up to your spiritual self, you will have a better, like an easier process in letting your brain accept new ways of doing things because it allows you to free some of your shame and guilt onto something else. So there is a lot of scientific proof behind why open up. Probably, as you said, what I find most interesting about you is you were so against anything religious. And then you had this out-of-body experience. You hear about people having these crazy out-of-body, like almost like a whole. Oh, okay. Well, outside. like, you know, God touching you with the sun, what I meant. Yeah. No, it was and a feeling warmth. It, yes. Yeah, a warmth and feeling that love. I mean, I consider yes. that to be, okay. I said to you, I don't know what that even feels like right. to be loved right. by something so much. Right. That you feel that you can hand off your stresses to someone else. Yeah, it grew though. That was the, like the, just the seed. You know, I think anxiety, all that fear, just that analytical brain, all that stuff just, just blocks it. So it's just us getting out of the way. But yeah, I was, um, I, I mean, before meeting Brian, I definitely, because of my desperation, had gone down, you know, some meditation stuff and I was trying to open myself up to it, but I just felt like I was never a spiritual person that I had some sort of defect. Well, I, I feel like I'm at the same place as you were back then. I've always yeah. been agnostic and um, I've believed in spiritual, but I haven't really ever believed in anything beyond that. But if anything that, you know, I've been reading and how I've been in this kind of darker place is that I'm opening myself up to that possibility now. And I want to hold on to something because also being in a, you know, terminal situation, what's become really important to me is believing in the afterlife and believing that there is something greater than just being here and that there is a a reason for us to, us to exist. And so I think I also was attracted and yet also turned off of your 
love of God and Jesus, right? And you could oh, tell oh, that yeah. in my first email that I wrote Absolutely. to you, like, because I was like, why would you send me a video about God? Like, yeah. I don't care about that. Like, I'm I'm sick. I'm struggling with cancer. I, I don't have time for this shit. Yeah. I need to get my brain retrained. I, I hear you. I hear you. And yeah, and my motivation is obviously getting people to understand that faith and science are linked, not separate. You know, through Brian, I actually, this is a crazy story, but he actually got me open my heart to uh, imagine or believing that potentially Jesus is real. And I was like, I can't ignore the fact that, you know, this book was written thousands of years ago. There's all these people still following him. There's like, there really was a Jesus as a man. There's been so much effect on culture. And I was starting to really be like, okay, you know, you're a truth seeker. So, you know, you got to be a truth seeker. And, um, and so when I started to read the Bible a little bit with him, obviously at this point, there was like a romantic connection. And if anything, I knew that it, I was trying to show interest in, in him and what he was interested in. Um, there was certainly that like such, such a personality of a perfectionist to go, I will then be a chameleon. How do I figure this person out so I can this person over? Yeah. Yeah. No, but also there's a part of me that was definitely intrigued because his relationship that he talked about with God, it was almost like I became kind of jealous of it. Well, I think that it, it got you open to brain retrieving, yes. which is you to believe in retraining, you have to have some faith because it's a pretty bizarre concept in a lot it of ways. Is. And that was the thing. I started to read the Bible and I started to also almost at exactly the same time um, that as I started to learn about the science of neuroplasticity and I was like, wait a second, <laughs> Jesus said this, these things like 2000 years ago. Like this is science. This is cutting edge science. Wow. And I could start to see a these- lot of the big leaders of different religions which I've started to understand talk a lot about brain retraining without saying those words and I was just looking through our library just now to grab a book and I couldn't believe how many of them are like change your brain change your body change your brain to find happiness like and Hinduism and all these different um, Buddhism and all these that talk about this so as we go into brain retraining let's actually let's jump into neuroplasticity because that is what made you better Yes, absolutely. I could not have just taken a Bible. I believe I would still be on that journey of healing if I had just had a Bible and I was trying to just interpret and it myself. So yeah, I started Um, brain retraining when I was, um, I got the program. I actually was introduced to DNRS by some doctor in the US probably almost a year before that. And my neurologist, my functional neurologist said to me, you can't train, retrain the limbic system. This sounds like, he didn't really, didn't really understand it because he didn't he wasn't able to, you know, really get into what it is because DNRS doesn't really, um, you know, let you know until you buy it. But yeah, my functional neurologist was like, your illness is not psychosomatic. So I ignored it about a year before when I was told about it. But anyway, so what I did start, um, you know, it was about January of 2019 that I started in the desert on my rental car DVD player. And I started the at-home program there in the, in the desert. And I started to see improvements within a month in terms of sensitivities, um, to my environment, but then the story just got kind of crazy after that. <laughs> well, and I'm at a month right now of doing the brain retraining with the DNRS system, yeah. which both of us highly recommend because it's a practical system. We're going to talk about that after. Um, but then go after you've done your month, then what happened? Well, <laughs> I learned a good lesson that basically when you 
consciously believe something, it doesn't necessarily mean that your heart believes it and your subconscious believes it. So I was at this place of, you know, desperation. I want to get home to my kids. I was seeing growth and what I could go in to a few more places, last in a town even longer. Um, It seemed like I was getting, you know, just more energy back and just feeling better overall. So I decided to kind of test it out and prove to myself that I could go to Phoenix, uh, which is supposed to be a really bad area for people like us for me at that time. Um, and so I was really pushing. So I was like, if I can go there, I can go home. Like I just wanted to get home. Um, and so I, I didn't even make it to Phoenix before I ended up in the hospital. Uh, it was pretty bad, <laughs> but it was me just not knowing like it was too early. Like this is where brain retraining is, is not just a do it through your own willpower kind of thing and just push. Cause anybody who's ever had this kind of an illness where it is like a push crash, Um, They know that like, well, when I just, you know, tried to do more than I could, which is, is a part of brain retraining, you learn to incrementally step-by-step do more than you've done before and act more like a healthy person. But when they've done that, they've just, it's been so much pushback and, and, and oftentimes just made them even sicker. So it's a really crazy story with um, someone having to call 911 because I just was basically non-functional and got me into a hospital and my mom had to come now fly down to the desert. Well, basically overnight and come take care of me because I could no longer take care of myself. And that was in, uh, I guess the, the hospital there was in Silver City, New Mexico. And then from there, it was crazy. My mom and I were kind of traveling all over the place at this point, trying to just kind of going back to some of my old methods or coping mechanisms, which were, you know, avoidance, decontamination, what's wrong with my environment, clean up my environment, and nothing was changing. And I was like, oh my goodness, what difference does it make? Essentially, it became what what difference does it make where I am at this point? It doesn't matter where I go. I can never get away from whatever this is in my body. So that was the moment when I realized with my mom that I had no, I was so numb and separated uh, mentally and emotionally that I felt nothing other than just waves of hopelessness come and fear. And um, my mom was there and I was realizing what I was putting her through. We had no bathroom. We had no nothing um, out in the middle of nowhere and, and realizing I'm ruining her life too. And so I had to make this decision of either she needs to leave because I can't do this to her. And I was afraid I was going to take my life at that point. If she left me, that was, that was, that was a real legitimate possibility or I need to face this and I need to go home. And um, yeah, so next stage was I literally, cause I was in such a poor state at this point, I did get myself on a plane. Can you talk about exactly that state? Aloof for sure. Um, I don't think I was just not there. Let's put it that way. Like people wouldn't really realize obviously what I was going through to the extent that I was going through it. But I think that I would have just been kind of like an empty shell to them. Physically, I had seen, you know, some good improvements. I was up now, um, but I'm literally living in like Walmart, men's Walmart uh, clothes, jogging, like joggers, like I like a pink hoodie or not sorry, orange hoodie. And just like, I mean, I look like a bum and I, um, I was there, but not there, but not there, I guess. I don't know how else to explain that. So I had to make that decision. Um, it was time to take a leap of faith. And, um, and so you, you got on the plane, which must've been really challenging to do, especially when you feel like people and environment that make you sick. Right. Yeah. I was wearing a mask (laughs) before COVID. (laughs) I made it, I made it cool. No, I was wearing, um, at some points, one of those, like basically a gas mask. Other points I was wearing an N95 mask. 
Um, so yeah, I, it was, it was difficult, but, um, like I said, it was easier in the sense that in the state that I was in, I was in a complete, like, it's like a bomb had gone off in my body. And so it was just like a constant thing that was happening. Um, so it was, uh, in some ways it actually opened the door yeah, for me to go home, but I had to live in my mom's sunroom. I couldn't live inside for another about six months after that. Could you see your kids at that time? Yes. Yeah, so I saw my kids. It actually, it's the, sadly, the reunion with my children, I couldn't feel anything. I knew in my heart, like I knew in my head, I love them, but I, I couldn't feel it. And um, so that was, you know, hard after not seeing your kids for so long. You're just like, I just want to feel this. <laughs> um, my mom was taking care of them when they were with me. Um, you know, we started out with about 40% of the time, their dad still had them 60% of the time because him and his parents did the majority, they were, you know, taking care of the kids when I was gone most of the time. And, uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was hard, but I was, my mom did everything. And then I just spent a little bit of time with them and a mask <laughs> in the house. And then I would leave. And so over time, obviously I was starting to spend more time with them as I was healing, doing this brain retraining program. Um, and eventually able to take my mask off more and be in there more and eventually start to actually do things for them, you know, like make them breakfast or something. And with the brain retraining, so you start, you start it back up yeah. and the premise of brain retraining, if we can go into it, is that you fill your head with positive thoughts and positive memories. And if you can't think of positive memories, you make them up. And currently, um, both yourself and I are reading the Becoming Supernatural, the new Dr. Joseph Dispenza uh, book. And he actually really writes it out on how to do it. He's, he's a little bit more, as we said, I mean, the DNRS program is a lot more practical and a lot more clear and precise. Right. Um, but he takes you through his program in his book. Very similar, but I would say DNRS is a lot more structured. Yes, a lot more structured and just easier to apply, I think, than Joe Dispenza's almost seems like you just do these meditations and then you wait and heal. So with that, I just want to say, you know, for something interesting that um, I encounter, obviously, people in, in my practice with all kinds of different conditions and illnesses, and they're not really sure whether brain retraining is for them because they don't know if they have what DNRS calls a limbic system impairment. So they kind of go, what's limbic and what's not limbic? And they kind of get technical with it. And so, but I, in my own journey with all of this, learned that literally everything I was experiencing in my body was a result of a maladapted stress response. And, um, and that there's some really good uh, information out there that all chronic illness starts with getting into a, a fight or flight, a chronic fight or flight where your, your brain essentially is on overdrive, making stress hormones all the time and you can't shut it off. And that starts these inflammatory genes being expressed through the power of the truth about epigenetics and your environment. And so inflammation disease starts to just happen through that. So in brain retraining, you're learning to interrupt that um, process that loop that your, your brain is getting stuck in. Um, and we start to direct out of that and it's changing the energy frequencies in your body, which sounds really hocus pocus, but it's not, it's, it's legit science. that's measurable. It's this process of raising and creating these energy fields and these energy frequencies of, you know, bliss, wholeness, freedom, love, joy, gratitude, uh, which are raising your frequency to a state where your body can actually start to heal in. 
So it's a really cool, there's a lot to it. I always thought that people that were super positive were not authentic. Right. Did they not go to Bidet Brown's lecture? Did they not get her book? I mean, the whole point about being human is to be vulnerable, to be sad, to sit in your sadness, to, I mean, all of this stuff. And then you go to brain retrain and it's like, no, 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 throw all that out. All that is, is not how your brain is going to be retrained. It's going to keep you in the fight or flight situation. Correct. And it's living by your feelings, right? And we think that something is worse than it really is. And out of that bias, you can start to get a better perspective on it. Like an example is um, when I get up in the morning, my brain sometimes will lie to me by saying it's going to be a bad day. I have anxiety. I wake up with anxiety already in my stomach and I haven't started the day. So why does it, why is it already negative? Right. I have, you know, it looks like it's going to be a nice day. It's nice outside. I'm going to have my nice tea, but the brain is like, wait, there's been so many days where you've woken up with a tummy ache that we can't function now without that tummy ache for you to change that, that tummy ache. You have to change your routine. You have to get out of your comfort zone a bit, and you have to talk to yourself in more of a positive light. I didn't realize how negatively I spoke about myself. We have these amazing organization called Wellspring, which helps cancer patients. And they have specific program for patients that are in stage four. But one of the things that uh, I learned from another participant is that when you get a compliment, it takes 22 seconds for it to reach to your brain, out to your body. But in that time, usually we all downplay the compliment. And so it never gets anywhere. It never becomes a positive energy for us. So Mm -hmm. as soon as somebody says, you're so pretty, oh, I'm not, you know, thank you, but I'm not that pretty. That, That already is now building your negative narrative. And it's like, we have a narrative in our brain and it loves to play woe me. That is what causes sickness. I mean, I believe that my cancer caused me because after I had a mobile app, it failed And it's so ridiculous to look back on how I could spend so many years feeling like a failure and feeling like, how could I be so successful at the beginning of my career and then have this big failure? And I believe that's what caused my cancer because it was a negative narrative constantly on my mind. And I remember one day driving in my car and saying to myself, if I got really sick, at least I'd have something to focus on besides my failure. Wow. You know, and I believe that those kind of statements fill your brain. Oh, yeah. And then it causes what you said. So I feel like I was in dark places last year and I was desperately looking for something for hope because I'd also got radiation done to my neck. And sometimes it could go into your brain and it can charge something up. It shouldn't be charged. But I didn't think of any of that as a as a side effect because I was just so cared about my pain in my neck. And then I went into the deepest dive ever. And that's why I believe that our brain is capable of so much more than we think, because how could a little bit of radiation turn me from being positive most of the time to taking such a negative dive to the point where I hardly get out of bed. It's, it's hard for me to to text back to people, um, things that I found joy in, I no longer found joy in. And then the narrative just continued to fall something about um neuroplasticity that's important to know is that 
emotions strengthen neural connections, negative emotions or positive emotions. Um, so obviously when something happens and then we respond a certain way and then we respond maybe that way again, we just, it makes it easier and easier. And that's when your brain can get stuck in a rut going down that old, that pathway and, and have a program, basically a mind already programmed of how you're going to respond. And um, I know Dr. Joe Dispenza, I think says that on average, people live about 95% of their life out of these automatic programs and only about 5% of their life is conscious. And I thought, wow. It means 5% of your life, you actually have free will. Yeah, essentially. And the rest is pre-programmed in your brain to react. Right. How you have set up your brain through negative self-talk, through thinking you're not worthy. And all of a sudden your life is controlled by that. Where are those influences coming from? The world? You know, you're important when you're, you're having achievements. It's just kind of the culture of our world these days. Yeah. They're saying, how are you doing with your career? How are you doing with exactly. your relationships? How are your kids doing? And if any of those things are working in your favor, you feel like, wow, in my head, I just keep turning around failure, 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 not living up to my potential failure, failure. And it gets so bad that people are getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I believe sicker and sicker in this world because of the negative news that's out there all the time. It certainly is a factor for sure. And yeah. how it's easy to be negative than it is to be positive. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing I always think, if my brain in one year got me into such a dark place, right? why can't my brain in one year get me into such a happy place? Well, and also because you've got programming of being happy at some point, you have these alternate pathways that maybe aren't being run a lot right now, but are, you know, as you're healing, you're seeing them run more, but you have um, alternate pathways that are masked and you can start to unmask them. So it become, can even become easier for you to get back into a state of being, you know, happy and joyful because you're not just sprouting completely new ones. Sometimes you're unmasking ones that are there. they just have not been really run much. Well, Joseph, Dispenza talks about the power of memories. Yes. He talks a lot about that. Um, And he talks about how we have to constantly be going back in time and remembering any positive memory we can get a hold of. And if you don't have a positive memory, then go into the future Mm -hmm. and create a memory from scratch that hasn't yet happened. And so he did it with a couple of case scenarios in his Becoming Supernatural, which is very closely tied to the to the DNRS program, but it's that every day you should be visualizing things that you want to do in your life that make you happy. So it's, a, it's yeah. thinking about it, but it's putting yourself in the situation. In the situation. If you and I did a scenario and I would say something like, oh, Bria, we had so much fun when we went to Hawaii. It was the best time. Oh my, we flew first class. I just loved that. I love that we got to have our cabin to ourselves we talk about it like it's already happened, but of course, Bree and I have never been to um, <laughs> Hawaii together and we have been <laughs> in a first class with their cabin by ourselves together. But it's enough for our brain to be to associate that memory yeah. with something positive. 
And, you know, when people start to do this, they can get frustrated at first and feel, um, you know, they might see, oh my gosh, there's hope for me. And they feel like it's not working at first. And a lot of times that's because their brain has been in survival mode for so long that it, your brain doesn't really create very well in that mode. So it can just take a bit of time of a little bit of a tug of war before things really start to open up and you start can start to imagine and create and get yourself into an experience. So it sounds like, oh my goodness, you know, this is so easy. Why does just everybody do it. It is hard. It's hard work. But I tell you, I took a dip a few times, which I just got lazy with it. And I just didn't feel I saw the immediate traction of it. But then one thing you always say to me is, what's your wins this week, Carla? And it makes me focus on, wow, you know what? Since I started this brain retrain, I have been out more in this, you know, it's probably six weeks now, six weeks now that I've probably been out in two to three years. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I even went away for a night and I haven't been away anywhere since I've been diagnosed with cancer. So good. I have seen changes. My family has seen changes, um, but I still have to be super committed and you have to be committed for minimum six months to really, I mean, if it takes years of creating your brain to be negative, you know, you can't expect it to turn positive in a week or a month or three months. It takes time. How long does it take for you? It's hard to say. I will, let's just say 14 months. And then beyond that, I still would say, you know, it's different, but the way I'm very, I guess, intentional about how I live my life still. So, but it's obviously easy. It's not, it's no longer hard work. Like it felt like when you're going through, it feels like you're having to train to be an Olympic athlete as you're going through the, the program. But honestly, I sometimes think that I feel like I just keep getting healthier as weird as it is. Cause I keep thinking it can't get any better, but it's almost like then a new limit gets taken off of me. And I, that one that I didn't even know I had. Um, so that's been really kind of a fascinating process to go through. And one thing that you and I talk about quite a bit is, is our triggers. And one trigger for me that used to be really hard for me, which I didn't realize is looking through old pictures of myself in my old life. Every time I would look through and I'd see a photo of me having a good time in my old life, I would feel sick to my stomach. Like, because I just figured that's never going to be me again. That's my old life. I'm, I'm stuck with this shitty new life. Then with the brain retraining, because now I look to the photos and the memories to create positive memories for me. When I see photos, I'm excited so good. Because I get to talk about an old memory that was that was good. Like my my trigger completely flipped right. to the other side to being a positive to me. So, yeah, it's what you focus on. One of the the principles of neuroplasticity are focus, association, and repetition. Far you're choosing to change the association, continue to focus on or focus on it, change the association, then repeat that, and you're you're winning. You know, and I think that you know when I learned about how the body is. 99.9% empty space and energy. There's very little matter to us or anything. I really started to blow my mind even more about the spirit realm behind everything and the power of energy. Like you're saying, yeah. and shame and guilt, condemnation, all of those are really, really dark or low, these low frequency energies. Any shame, any guilt is just playing havoc in your body. Yeah. It's having a field day in there. And not a good field day. It's struggling and it wants it. Your brain wants more than anything for you to love yourself. You know, we're, we're all taught to be humble. Well, no, it's not. There's no time to be humble anymore. 
Don't be humble. That's a very good thing that you just brought up. But humility, I think there's the, the wrong definition of humility. When people think being humble is saying, oh, you know, other people are better than me. I'm, I'm not, well, no, I'm not worthy. Or, you know, thinking lowly of yourself. Humble is actually, at least in the biblical sense, means that you are putting yourself not above or below what, how God sees you. So if you choose to be um, focused on, oh, I'm not, you know, I suck at this or nobody likes me. It's actually as much as we might think that we're not being proud or prideful. It actually is because it's self-centeredness. It's focused on how other people yes. see. So it's, it's goes both ways. You can be arrogant and we think of those people as being proud and not being humble, but actually also being so shy and afraid of um, speaking to somebody because of what they're going to think about you is actually also pride believe it or not, it's self-centeredness. So there's a, there is a humility there in the middle that um, it's a quiet confidence. This is such a nice way to say it, a quiet confidence and to accept um, compliments when people give them, give them to you. Don't look at the news first thing in the morning, read something positive, uplifting, Um, talk to yourself as though you're the most amazing person in the entire world. I mean, one of the things that I say every day is, Carla, you're amazing. I mean, there's a whole spiel that we do through the DNRs program that tells you how great you are to just be thinking of visualizing your future, doing happy, fun things that you enjoy doing and just find joy in life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you get filled up essentially with how I see it is you're filling up, getting so filled up and it sounds like it can be, oh, that's really self-centered. But what you're doing is you're actually getting so filled up that then the overflow of this really, I think, love, that that actually just pours out on everyone around you. So you actually become more selfless. You become more giving, but it's not. Yeah. The more you love yourself, the more you give to yourself, yeah. the more it's like the same thing, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. You can take care of whoever is with you. You know, it's usually meant for your kids. And it's the same concept here. So I just want to thank you. You've been um, amazing and inspiring. And I always say after I finish a phone call with you, I always feel more inspired to continue my practice. And uh, you've really made a difference. Oh, my goodness. In in my life. yeah, the last I love you. And I, when we first met, I think the very first time we did our consult, I was like, "Okay, cancer, it's no different than anything else." Like, yeah, you are, you are healing. <laughs> yeah, like, you did. What the world says to you. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. You were like, "We're gonna just, you know, we're just gonna act like you don't have cancer." And I'm like, yeah. "Okay, let's. That's a good. That's a good idea." The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. If you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance, and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.